Hello and welcome to a one-off special interview for Straight From The Hot Tap. Regular listeners will have tuned in to an episode a few months ago with a guy called Paul Biddle. Paul is an international security specialist with an incredible background in working in some of the world's most dangerous and troubled places. So when Paul agreed to talk to us, we were obviously very grateful to have him back on the show. But I don't think either Matt or I were particularly prepared for the generosity of Paul in giving us his time but also the depth and detail that Paul went into explaining from somebody that genuinely knows the true story of what's been going on there. So we hope you enjoy this interview. It's not an easy listen at times. It's certainly not funny. Uh, It's certainly not our usual fare, if you like, as a podcast. But this interview is really quite fascinating. I'm Matt. And I'm Lou. I'm Johnny. I am Josh. And I'm Matt. And this this is Straight straight from the Hot hot Set. 20 years ago, I was sat at my desk in Richmond-on-Thames, and my boss, Rachel, at the time, suddenly went silent. Uh, She was sat in front of a computer. This is before computers were the norm in businesses, which sounds ridiculous saying it out loud now. I was in a small office of seven people, and in my department, we had just one PC between the three of us. We used to do a lot of work from files using spreadsheets and a phone. My boss, Rachel, she was the one that had the use of the PC and she was usually very chirpy first thing in the morning and all of a sudden she went silent. And it was at this point that an email had come into her from a friend saying that a plane had been flown into the World Trade Center. Of course, initially we all thought this was an accident, that this was a, a terrible coincidence that a plane had lost control and and had hit a building it was only moments later when we realized that something much more sinister was afoot and the second plane hit the trade center followed by the rest of the news which is massively familiar to everybody i think now i remember going out into the streets and i stood outside a branch of what was called dixon's which is now curry's an electrical retailer I was there with, I don't know, 10 other people probably standing in in the rain, looking at a massive TV screen, replaying the very familiar and always shocking images that were coming out that day. It was something that massively affected me. My recollection of 9-11 was, was really quite similar. The crazy thing is the previous year, I'd spent a bit of time in New York and had actually been up the World Trade Center with this friend of mine. And we'd actually taken a bunch of photos from the, from the roof. It was actually my first day on my new job. I was working at a bookstore in, in the West End of London. No, it was my second day. And um, I was with my friend, Chris Jenkins, who was working as a tour guide for the London Big Blue Bus Company or whatever it's called. I got a phone call from someone going, you have to get to a TV right now. And I was at Marble Arch. And then I walked along Oxford Street to see there was a crowd of people about five layers thick outside of Dixon's on Oxford Street, and everyone was watching, and it was, of course, the images of the... I think the the second tower had just been hit, so they knew it was a terrorist attack. And then someone in the the crowd said to me, there's just been a, a plane hit the Pentagon as well. And then seconds later, the images on the TV changed to show that the Pentagon had been hit too. And then I remember there was one of the evening standard sellers as I walked to the branch of Waterstones on James Street where I worked. And this standard 
headline was Terror War on USA. That moment began the modern era that we live in. Effectively, events moved to the beginning of the war in Afghanistan, which happened, I think, almost the same day. And that's a war that's gone on throughout the entire of our adult lives. It's become something a bit like, say, the Hundred Years' War in medieval times, which was a war that just kept on going and had periodic breaks. And I feel like the war in Afghanistan is our own Hundred Years' War, because no one can quite figure out why it started or why we actually went into Afghanistan in the first place. We can't figure out what we're supposed to be doing there. And all we know is that leaving is a huge shock because it's so destabilizing. I feel like almost everyone universally has been very critical of how we left Afghanistan. Our guest today is not an exception to that. But it's really a great privilege to be able to speak to someone who actually knows about what's going on because everyone was unbelievably shocked by the terrible images of the people evacuating. The um, photos of the people falling off the planes were just too disturbing. It's great to be able to have him on the show again. And it's also really good to be able to talk about such a difficult subject as the idea of Western interventionism. You know, they used to call it Western exceptionalism or American exceptionalism. In the 19th century, they called it manifest destiny. It's one of those perpetually difficult subjects to discuss because the West has a long history of invading other people's countries and claiming to the people living there that it's doing it for a good reason and for their own benefit. At the same time, when you have people who repress half the population, it's difficult not to make a case to try and help. I think the thing that struck me is if we detach your view of warfare and war-torn places based on your political standpoint a lot of the time, if you're generally pacifist in nature or you attribute blame to the warfare on a regime that you didn't agree with or didn't vote for, you tend to feel very negative towards those conflicts. You tend to think of you know, one side as the aggressor and the other side as the victim. What I found fascinating about this interview was the real stories of real people trying to do a job in the same way that you and I do jobs, but with a mission to try and achieve something for the benefit of the population of that country. You can argue the toss whether it's the right or the wrong thing to do. I think what's becoming irrefutable watching the news recently and understanding more recently the reality of living under extreme regimes that the Taliban, Daesh, in these various fundamentalist regimes around the world do not sit well with progressive modern life. There are morality issues within our society, no question. But to see a society who have made such big strides forward in human rights, in equality for women, in taking away some of the the violence and the, the threats of reprisals over the last 20 years has been a positive thing for that region. And it's cost a lot of people their lives. And a lot of people lay down their lives in that fight based on their belief in fulfilling a mission and to see that mission closed off boxed off as if it was a, a piece of paper in a filing cabinet has been very shocking for people that weren't there for the people that were there it's gone far deeper than that as you'll find when we talk to paul well 
It's going to be a great interview, and it's the kind of thing that you can argue about forever. I should just point out that people in those countries often look at us the way that we look at the Taliban, that they see the West as corrupt and perverted. So it's really fascinating to be able to get the opinion of someone who actually knows. You know. So without further ado... This is Straight From The Hot Tap, special guest interviews. Listen, I saw that video of the people falling off the planes. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. I thought it was a fake. So I'm actually really looking forward to this conversation because, Paul, I know you're going to be able to tell me exactly what's going on in an incredibly nuanced and interesting way. But I'm going away to Sequoia at the weekend, and I'm going to tell the people I'm going with as if I know. And I'm going to pretend <laughs> I am an unbelievably insightful expert on Afghanistan and give you no credit. <laughs> as I would do the same. It's almost too perfect. Exactly. It's great. <laughs> I think I have to start by saying I am incredibly angry and very emotional about what's happened. I've been in contact with lots and lots of people over the last few days, watched friends of mine discuss it very, very eloquently. Uh, and each day, uh, for me, it becomes more painful. I think I'd like to say that I didn't go initially there to warfight. I was not a soldier. So I can't put that layer of hurt on myself. Like many of my friends who have served out there in Helmand warfighting, I cannot even begin to imagine the hurt that they're feeling. So I, I am no way diminishing you know, my story with theirs. Theirs is far greater than I. I first went out there. I'd done a tour in, in Iraq, and then I was asked to go to Palestine to supervise PFLP prisoners. I was head of mission for a joint US-British mission. That was about to collapse politically, and so I was asked by the Foreign Office to go out to do an assessment of counter-narcotics programs in Afghanistan. And at that period in time, 2005, the UK had counter-narcotics. That was its role and function. I spent some time in the British Embassy in Kabul and met with all the Afghan counter-narcotics staff, DEA, uh, and we had a joint UK mission headed up by customs, police, uh, and various other people. The actual role itself was to look at how are we going to keep the top 100 drug dealers in custody. Who are they and how are we going to capture them? I came back to the UK uh, and about four weeks later, my boss called me up and said, the foreign office wanted you to go back, take a, a team. Uh, and I actually took the same team as I took to Iraq back to start a program of building high security facilities and training counter-narcotics police. And a few things happened in the 2005, uh, we were caught up on the Jalalabad Road, a German convoy was ambushed, watched that from afar, but nothing too traumatic uh, in 2005. 2006, I went back in the January and uh, we were seconded to the United Nations Office for Drugs and Crime, who had been given the mission and it also gave us the ability to work under the UN auspices, even though it was a, a British mission. So the team came in, we worked out of a place called Pulacharki, which is uh, a massive, massive prison on the outskirts of Kabul, built by the Indians in the 1960s, and 
Uh, one of the first things we did, because no one had been there, we opened it up. When we got to Polacharki, we found, and this is something that's haunted me for some time, the Taliban, a few years beforehand, had about 20,000 prisoners in this place. They asked them to strip. They wrote their last goodbyes on pieces of cardboard. They were then marched out into the desert and executed. So when we turned up a few years later, it was as though nobody had touched it. So the clothes were still on the floor, covered in dust, about a foot deep with all cardboard notices and all the rest of it. Took lots and lots of photographs, caught it in as a sort of scenes of crime, uh, only to find that the uh, Afghans had come in and cleared the whole place up. That information was then passed on to UN war crimes uh, much later on. We had a program of, of rebuilding, and then we started a program of recruiting and training Afghans as part of a counter-narcotics police. One incident springs to mind, uh, 2006, George Bush was flying in to uh, Kabul. Doha conferences had just started, and we had finished the first training program with these young guys, awesome, awesome young guys who were now going to be counter-narcotics police. And fortuitously, instead of heading straight up to Polacharki, we'd forgotten the certificates in the office. So I said to the guys, look, let's go down to the office, pick up the certificates, and then zip off. As we're driving back to the office, I get a phone call from the British Embassy saying, have you heard there's something going on at Polacharki? No, nothing at all. And what it was is that the BBC had learned of uh, the first ever training program and had decided that they were going to come along and do a little piece on what we'd achieved. So they were outside just as 1,500 Taliban and Al-Qaeda decided to kill the guards and take control of the prison, broke through into the women's section, took them hostage, and were looking to break out and head into Kabul. And I was asked by the ambassador, Ambassador Marsden, uh, and the head of the UNODC, to go up there by myself, not to go in, but to go up there to give them a briefing on what was going on. So I said to my guys, I said, look, you know, this is what's happening, blah, blah, blah. I've got to go up there. We've got the armored vehicles. I'll give you a shout when I get back. And they all said, no, you're not going by yourself. And I said, look, you know, I, I can't authorize this. And they said, you don't have to. We're coming with you. So we went up there and we spent four days. I spent four days negotiating with the Taliban. Taliban commander. We we managed to uh, secure the perimeter, which hadn't been done. We moved the army outside of the prison. I think one of the funniest pieces that I did, and it still makes me laugh, is that I walked in and they said, who are you? I said, I don't know why I said this. I said, I'm a general. I just thought for a moment that being a former sergeant probably wouldn't cut it. And so at that point, they all sort of stood up and said, okay, what do we do? fortuitously they listened to me and and did what i said four days later we'd come the situation out we've got the dead out we got the women out and then relocated them and part of the deal was uh, that the taliban commander who i've recently seen on tv was released as part of the deal so we carried on doing that work and then i came back i gone through the Danish cartoon riots. There was another major riot when the Americans opened fire after a road traffic accident killed a lot of people. During the Danish cartoon riots, I, I slept on the roof of the guest house we were staying at, UN guest house. And then uh, we were briefly evacuated under a, 
evacuation plan. And then I came back after six months. I retired uh, a year later. Snatched up by the Foreign Office in 2008. Did a couple of missions. Then I was asked uh, directly by the UN if I would go back and become a senior UN advisor under the United Nations Assistance Mission in Afghanistan. That was in 2009. My primary function there was to assist with provincial justice issues uh, around the provinces, support the movement of Taliban prisoners back to Kabul. And I worked with a guy called Doug Stone, General Stone, a U.S. Marine Corps, who was put in charge of overseeing uh, U.S. detention facilities. I have to add that back in 2006, I designed and built Bagram and, and various other sites uh, around Kabul to hold terrorists. So uh, I did that for a year, and you're probably aware that the guest houses were attacked at the end of 2009, and I went through the, the guest houses when 11 UN members were killed, and Anne will tell a, an interesting story where I phoned her up at half past six and said, look, there's gunfire outside the guest house. I don't know what it is. I'm going to go dark. Now, bear in mind that I was in the same guest house as I was back in 2006. So this is three years later. We hadn't been issued body armor. And so I have no idea why I did it. I looked under the bed and I was in the same room. And my body armor from three years before where I'd stowed it was still there. <laughs> so I gathered as many people as I could together up on the second floor. Uh, and one of the little tricks uh, I learned uh, many moons ago, uh, and this, this doesn't work on a carpeted stairs, by the way, and it works on the sort of uh, industrial type stairs, is get a fire extinguisher and throw foam on it. Nobody can come up the stairs. It's too slippery. So I got everyone together. And I mean, there's a whole story I could tell you that we were followed back by the Taliban the night before I told the guards. I'd been doing some work for the UN uh, security teams. I headed the intelligence cell during the uh, presidential election. And so I was, I was pretty well tied into the security intelligence side. And I know that they were looking to get into us because Chris Alexander, who was the former Canadian ambassador, had the room below me. And he was the uh, special representative, deputy special representative. So I know that they were after our guest house, but we'd reinforced it because of what I said with Gurkhas. So they went to the next guest house and I'm saying killed 11 people. So that was 2009. I went back there in 2011, but this time I went back by myself. It was an EU project. I had enough contacts out there to operate by myself. So I had a small Hazara team and the primary function was to do an assessment on EU justice projects. So it wasn't fighting season, although I got a piece of shrapnel in my leg from the Safi Hotel bombing, but nothing too bad. Apart from coming back after the mission, Anne picked me up from uh, Bristol uh, Airport and I said, she said, oh, I love to see you, blah, blah, blah. I said, we need to go to A&E. And I had a, a major problem with my leg. That was 2011 and 2018, I went back to advise on election security. It was the first elections that the Afghans were going to be running by themselves. So working there with the elections, security had almost disappeared in Kabul. 2014, the bulk of the military had been moved out. 
So everything was really much down to the Afghans with a very, very small force, 2,500. But obviously maintaining the Afghan uh, vehicles, maintaining the Afghan intelligence, and also, of course, uh, maintaining the uh, embryonic uh, Afghan Air Force. Pretty much keeping the embassies floating, and obviously with a plan of if anything went really bad, they would be the force protection to get people out. Now, I was evacuated back in 2006 uh, after the Danish cartoon riots, and then we were fully ev- uh, evacuated in 2009 after the attack on the guest houses. They're pretty well tested uh, where the military would be the last to collapse. So the, the military would offer the force protection, the civilians get out, and then everything collapses back on the airfield. So that brings to sort of my background. The other thing I'd add is interpreters have been contacting me. My interpreter from 2009, a very, very bright lady, her husband had been working for the Turkish military, and they got them out over a month ago, which is really quite interesting and a big tell. That is interesting. Uh, that suggests more forward planning than it seems has been the case. Yes. Our interpreters come and go on the UK side. When we've sort of collapsed and, and, and the military moved out in 2014, a certificate and the thanks of a grateful nation and sent them home. The UN did very much the same in any interpreters that left. And obviously the Americans did exactly the same. Uh, so, you know, thanks for a grateful nation. Here's a certificate. Go home. There was never any central database. And to be fair, even though I think every president has turned around and said at some point that we will be leaving, the fact of the matter is, is that either nobody believed them or they thought that the situation would be such that the support mechanism would be there for the Afghan military for some time. So it simply wouldn't be good night and goodbye and, and that's it and everything would leave. So what happened? Bagram, which was obviously one of the major military bases, they literally packed up and left, and the Afghans didn't even know about it. The British didn't know about it. NATO didn't know about it. Why do you think that was? In truth, I think they just thought they would do it, and it wouldn't matter. And I think in in all this, every decision that you make in life, there's going to be an outcome. And sometimes those outcomes you can cater for and sometimes you can't i don't think they catered for any outcomes they just did it now what was at bagram bagram obviously had the uh, afghan air force it had all the intelligence and the drones and the satellites and everything that you need in the background to keep a successful campaign going so they woke up one morning and it had gone I saw on the news, you know, they'd left Bagram Air Base and there was like all, there was a photo of all the civilian vehicles left. My big question in all this is what happened to the Afghan army that we trained? The thing is, is that uh, you have to fully understand what was going on at Bagram to know that it was, it was the equivalent to literally there's nothing behind you now. There's no one watching your back. I think there's a couple of myths here. First and foremost, this idea that there were 300,000 Afghan soldiers is, is a myth. At best, there was 150,000. And most of those were marginally trained. Most of them were in fixed points. So as far as our training, uh, our training was in defense 
only. Most of them then came under commanders who had been politically appointed. So politically by the Afghan by government. by Ghani and uh, right. and the warlords who had influence over Ghani. So to be a colonel or a general, that was pretty much a political appointee. Not all, but most. Most of them were young lads, and they went there to get paid. They were in fixed points, so they were manning checkpoints, uh, lines in the sand. There was no resupply. They had no ammo resupply, no food resupply, no water resupply. They actually had very little in medical. Now, you know, obviously in the UK, we know we have our MERT teams. If you get wounded within 20 minutes, you're back in a, in a fob somewhere. The finest medical care ever. Certainly not the case in Afghanistan. The capability was very limited. The Taliban, on the other hand, had a plan. They had lots of money. And Where so does this money come from? I've always wondered this. Qatar and right. Pakistan. And there's not to say that Russia and Iran didn't have a part in this. They simply went to a checkpoint, said, don't fire on us. Here's uh, $500 each. Go home. So what you're saying is that the, whatever the Afghan army was didn't fight because it was just basically bribed to stand down. It had no ammunition. It had no food. It had no water. There were you know, young lads from, from the villages. Their pay had been stopped. They knew the Americans were going home. Morale, and again, you know, if you consider the question of morale in any army that's gone through this in the past, if you know that there is no one there to support you, no backup, and in many cases the commanders themselves had been bribed to stand their troops down, then you saw the Americans leaving with the best will in the world. What is there to fight for? So you will either just take your uniform off and, and go home and take your money, uh, and that's the end of it. The other side of it, of course, is they took massive casualties over the last few years. I mean, I can remember in 2018, and I actually don't think it's been truly reported. I mean, people have sort of given the, the casualties of deaths of, of somewhere in the region about 60,000. You've got to triple that as far as wounded is concerned, lifetime wounds, you know, amputations and stuff. Then you add PTSD, uh, various other issues into the mix. You've got to be looking at somewhere in the region of 200,000 casualties. So that sort of attrition, when you know that everyone's going home, the people that wanted you to fight in the first place are going home, there really isn't much incentive. Now, I know some of the special forces and some of the special police units carried on fighting. They carried on fighting until they ran out of ammunition. And of course, there was that famous thing a month ago where one of the best commando unit fought to the last bullet, surrendered, and then every single one of them was shot. Uh, and then post it on Facebook. All the young lads will see that and say, they're the best of the best. They had no resupply. Nobody came for them. Nobody said, we're going to put a convoy in to bust through the Taliban and give you ammunition to come and get you out of there. So morale is just not going to be there. I've got to tell you that it makes me very angry because I've seen the Afghans, their bravery. It is intense, just incredible. I've also got to tell you a small story of commitment. And we were recruiting for commanders for the counter-narcotics police. A pretty tough job. The concept of it would have been to go in and snatch high-level people 
who were probably in positions of power and, and influence. So a pretty tough and demanding job. So as these guys came in, and I made it very clear that I, I would not be part of the selection, it had to be a, an Afghan selection. And the general said to me, no, 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 but I want you by my side. So I sat with him, my interpreter, Muki, who was next to me, who actually <laughs> was a, a former worker in WH Smith's, an illegal immigrant who was then sent back to Afghanistan. He spent uh, seven years working for WH Smith's. And, Incredible, um, isn't it? As they came in and they had to do a written test and, and they had to know how to read and they read from the Quran and the written test was to write something down and then they were interviewed. And they all came in incredibly smart in their sort of post-Soviet uniforms, saluted and all the rest of it. And, uh, and they had more people that, than the posts. And one guy turned up and not to put too fine a point on it, he looked like He'd been dragged through every hedge from Kandahar to Kabul, and he stank. And I just looked at Mookie and raised my eyebrows. Now, the general obviously saw me and never said a word, and they interviewed him and, he and all the rest of it. And at the end, he said, Mr. Paul, he said, you disapprove of Colonel, whatever his name was, General, I said, with the greatest respect, everyone else has made a real effort to look the part. Uh, and this guy hasn't he went mm. so humiliating for me in some respects but important lesson so he said colonel in dari what's the story of how you got here and obviously mookie was translating this he said my post is in kandahar and unfortunately there is no transport and so i had applied for the job and I got the letter to say that I'd been selected for interview. So I knew it would take me about a week to walk here. So I did. Wow. 300 wow. miles. Wow. I just looked at the general. I went, he's got the job, hasn't he? And he went, yes, he has. Unbelievable. Um, um, so the young lads that we trained who had never been in any environment they cared about their country or the future of their country. They cared that women would have a, a reasonable life. And, and, and the other thing is, I would say, is that we were never there to turn it into Henley-on-Thames. At best, Egypt. So the whole idea that we were there to put in woke agendas and, and have all this was an absolute nonsense. Absolute nonsense. Well, I'm ashamed to say I don't think I've ever met, knowingly anyway, an Afghani. How would you describe them as a, as a people? I think culturally you, you have to say, you know, how would you take a Scots or an Irishman or a Welshman or an Englishman or a Cornishman uh, and such, multi-ethnic. Pashtuns, fiercely warrior-like. Hazaras, fiercely warrior-like. The Urbanites were very much enthralled on your sort of Dubai, uh, Egyptian, Lebanese influences. The average guy was a farmer i think that the closest that historically would be the young farmer who goes off into the first world war has never left the farm and is then faced with the horrors of the western front reads and writes to a moderate level but certainly not erudite or western in any way tough people cared very very much about having a, a a country that they could be proud of, 
all very, very religious. Even the women that I met in the police and the military and in government, very religious. So again, that the ideal that they embraced Western attitudes is again a complete falsehood. But also very proud of their history. I remember uh, used to be an old Haji Sahib, a guy that had done the Hajj, big grey beard. We used to pass every day and we used to drop off rations to him and have a chat to him and he was very interesting. And I remember one day stopping off, giving the normal greetings and, and speaking to him. And, and he, he said to Mookie through the interpreter, this is 2006, I hear the British are going to Helmand. And he laughed. He said, have you lost your minds? And I said, well, it's peaceful down there. That, you know, know some of the history, the Americans built all the canals down there back in the 60s and 70s. And he said, no, he said, Maywand. I said, Maywan? Well, yeah, because I know about Maywan, 66th of foot. He said, yeah, you, you were beaten at the Battle of Maywan by the Afghans. And now you're going to go back? And do you not think that every fighter is going to go down there and have a go to humiliate you even further because you don't know your history and you think you can go back to somewhere where you were defeated? He then went on to say, you know, the, the, the river you've just gone over is called the Charki. The Charki brothers fought at Maywand. They're so involved in their history. I mean, they know every nuance. It's all verbalized and passed down from father to son. We didn't know any of this history. And if we did, we ignored it. We didn't know the importance of it. And I think for Afghans, their history and how proud they are to have defeated everyone that's ever tried to conquer it. It is such an important aspect to them. And so Afghans, fantastic people. I've never sh been shown anything but absolute kindness. But insult the prophet, insult their country, then you have an enemy for life. So how do you feel, Paul, looking back then at being in Afghanistan in the first place? Because you know at the time, it felt like the Americans needed a bloody corpse in the parade ground for 9-11. It felt like there was uh, something else there. But equally, there was a part of me that said, you know what, this Taliban are a nasty bunch. I think there's a number of issues. First and foremost, clearly, the Taliban were asked to hand over bin Laden. They refused. Al-Qaeda were very much linked to the Taliban and still are. The Taliban were a clear and present danger to everyone, and not only 9-11, but various other attacks so uh, the idea of going there and deposing of the Taliban was absolutely the right and proper thing to do. Now, obviously, part of the spin at the moment is we should then have left. Uh, what would have happened then? The Taliban would have remained and Al-Qaeda would have remained. And obviously, you, you're, you're aware that Al-Qaeda is not just a singular person. And so while the Taliban existed, Al-Qaeda will exist in that area. So how do you differentiate between the two? This is one of the issues that I think the vast majority of people haven't grasped is there's no clear Taliban per se. It's made up of tribal leaders, political parties, TPP in Pakistan, uh, and various other hodgepodges of people on the ground. Probably more unified now than they've ever been, but certainly uh, as far as war fighting, you'll have in the east who will be joined with certain elements in the following fighting season he says i'm standing my troops down and then various other tribes will come and go within the concept of the taliban what we've done by leaving now is we've actually unified or i think we have unified the taliban into a more homogenous blob 
Yeah. And Al-Qaeda now is an integral part of the Taliban. If there was tenuous links in 2001, those tenuous links have now gone. And of course, the decision to move out has meant that the prisons, I certainly, in my time there, are aware of 10,000 Taliban, 5,000 Al-Qaeda, are now. And of course, the US has released the Guantanamo Bay leadership, who are now back in Kabul as leadership of the Taliban. So we have now created this massive monster now. What happened to all the military aid that we gave them? Our training and advisory was very much to maintain an army of some capability that would fight a fair fight. So a Taliban brigade would come down the road and a Afghan army division would fight them. That was never, ever the case. Since 2014, the Taliban have simply moved small units into the population, into staging posts, staging areas, way, way away from the main barracks and and the static posts, and then literally rose up on a word and a plan behind, to the side, in front, with a plan to coerce and bribe key people within the organizations, and literally came out of the ground so that the army that we trained, we never trained them for that. We never trained them for counterinsurgency. We never trained them to be flexible enough to say, okay, we're now surrounded, what do we do? The other side of the coin is... For the Afghan army, this has been going on since 2001. Sustaining the casualties and sustaining the momentum and the morale for that period of time with a young and inexperienced soldiers is almost impossible. This opens up huge questions uh, militarily for the West is, would we have done any better? So... The biggest we've ever had, I think, is 120,000 troops in the British Army. So even putting those in the field, could we have done any better? It begs the question, and I use the analogy of Vietnam, of how many troops were there and the Tet Offences still happened, the amount of casualties that the Americans took. So the idea of an army rising from the ground, which is basically what the Taliban have done, I mean... These are not people in uniforms. Whilst they maybe have some command and control, it's pretty much down to section, platoon, and and small unit stuff. So the flexibility, uh, the ability of the Taliban, who don't need ammunition, water, food, medical, they fight with what they've got against a Western-trained army that requires to have all the elements that that we would normally have in the West. I mean, this is a debate that's going to be raging now in every defense college known to man. The ramifications, not only obviously for our own security, with now Taliban and Al-Qaeda you know, that reformed, and how they're going to run the country, but how Western armies can actually deal with this. And again, we're looking at multi-generational warfare. So multi-generational warfare, we've never known that. We've never known a multi-generational war um, in our lifetime. Germany was six years. 
Northern Ireland 30 years uh, and look at the toll that that's taken. And that was certainly at the very most you had a small amount of, of terrorists and a political solution. What risk or links are there between the remnants of Daesh and the Taliban? Well, the Taliban and Daesh don't like each other. That's useful. <laughs> Pulacharki, one of the leaders of IS, uh, the first th things they did when they released all the prisoners out of Pulacharki was kill him, which sent a very clear message. There's literally no love lost. Now, that's not to say in the future there, there might be. But I mean, remember, a lot of these fighters do flip between groups. So, you know, um, what ISIS today, there might be Taliban tomorrow and Al-Qaeda the following day. And there's no love lost between some of the, the Taliban groups as well. So, again, that's going to be very much, uh, let's see where that takes us. But uh, as it stands at the moment, especially with Abdullah Abdullah uh, and the previous president now assisting with the uh, Taliban government to have a normal face, Al-Qaeda clearly well within the, their bosom. Will we see fighters generating to go there to join and to see uh, what training they can do? Are they going to take the band and have a few away, uh, away matches? Um, these are all things to be seen. I think we are probably in the most dangerous place that we've ever been. What do you make of this guy, Ashraf Ghani, the president? And secondly, when you started the conversation saying that you're really angry, why are you really angry? I'm angry because it didn't have to happen. I'm not going to sit here and say that at some point in time, it may have happened, but it didn't need to happen now, and it didn't need to happen by us. A force of 2,500, uh, a bunch of contractors were generally keeping the lid on it. They were providing enough backup to the Afghans to to hold and then obviously then you had you know more and more training more and more advisory stuff and building up their capability so it didn't need to happen that's the first thing the second thing is there has been no thought in this process about what we actually have achieved and the concept of oh we haven't achieved a great deal for 20 years Al-Qaeda have not been able to use Afghanistan. For 20 years, the people of Afghanistan had had a relatively normal life insofar as they've enjoyed a degree of freedom. Not perfect. Not perfect by any, any means. The other thing is, is that, and I hate to sort of look at the, the women but do we really want a country to regress to a point where women are slaves? Is that a world? And I'm not going to go all globalist on you. Is that a world that we are happy with? Now, we can talk about Mauritania and slavery. We can talk about various other countries that, that do shit thing. But we had a decision to say, we're not going to let that happen. That decision was made without a care clearly if the decision and again you know, i'm not pointing any fingers because i think most presidents have made the sounds and obviously one's actually done it but the point is is that is that a world that we want to live in where we make such a song and dance and rightly so 
you know, having got two daughters who, you know, have done well for themselves. Do we want to live in a world where we say, we don't care? I dare say it could have been done in such a way that they were replaced by, I don't know, the Turkish or, or, or somebody else, right? The Brits weren't even informed. Boris Johnson tried to phone up and couldn't get through. Was that a deliberate thing, do you think, or just incompetent oversight? I mean, I, I got a million and one conspiracies bouncing through my head, but I mean, I'm just going to stick to the facts that it happened. And we've now given the country back to terrorists. Uh, and for 20 years, we denied them that access. If we'd pulled out in 2002, after taking out um, Al-Qaeda, we would be where we are now. But we would have had 20 years of a, a terrorist state. I just think as people who profess to enjoy human rights and freedom, to make a decision to say, we don't care about you, we have for 20 years, we've been there, we've promoted certain elements of our way of life, we've given you a, a generation of people the ability to, to see a woman's face on a shop front, to have weddings, to play music, for your girls to go to school. We promoted that for 20 years, and then we've said, ah, actually, we don't, we don't really care now. You know, how the decision made, who made the decision is almost irrelevant in the grand scheme of things. And now we have a refugee crisis that is going to be far outweigh anything that we've ever seen before. For the sake of soldiers who, in the main, doing six-month rotations... Could there have been casualties? I mean, the argument is, of course, you know, not one American life or British life is worth an Afghan, whatever. I see that argument. I see that argument. But now we're in a position where we've got more troops than we've ever had trying to get out 5,000 American and British, French and Italians who are now trapped in Taliban lines. Fundamentally, if they were to close the airport for aircraft coming in we've got a prisoner of war camp of 7,000 american and british troops everyone's watching the news going what's happening at the airport they're on the military side not on the civilian side so everything that you're seeing is those on the civilian side so the hamakazai uh, airport uh, you have uh, a, a japanese built <laughs> i've got to tell you the first time i flew in I flew in military. First time I flew in, there was no, no customs, no anything. No, it was a, it was a hut and an old guy with a stamp who just stamped you. It was sort of an old Russian stamp or something. And of course, now you've got this huge Japanese terminal. They're on the military side on the north gate, and obviously people are trying to make their way there um, uh, through the Taliban lines. Um, some are being let in, some aren't. Uh, and my understanding is that special forces from the French and, and, and Brits, um, if they have somebody who they know they need to get out, are going out dead at night. I mean, the bravery of these guys is just amazing um, to try and get them back into the airport. It's a hot mess. I mean, obviously, you've got people who have a joint nationality. You've got people who have got letters to say that you know they worked for the military and they're trying to get past the Taliban to try and get in. And we're, we're seeing scenes of babies being thrown over the barbed wire and stuff like this. The fear from your average Afghan, again, a generation who have worked for British interests, French interests, uh, American interests, you know, banking, NGOs, uh, so on and so forth. 
are now all fearing for their lives. So is that fear founded? Yes, without doubt, without question. This might be a slightly crass question, but have you personally met a, a Taliban fighter? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so and I, how would I, you describe that experience? They literally see anyone that's, that's touched the West as being tainted and not worthy of life. That's it, in a nutshell. How would they compare to, in terms of their worldview and brutality to IS or oh, uh, other uh, fighting forces around the world? That- oh, exactly the same. They know that everyone that's been touched by the West is ultimately against them. But they've also, they're tainted. They are no longer righteous. I mean, the religious element to this should not be understated. The purges of Catholics back in in the day or or Jews in, in the Middle Ages. Pol Pot, you wore glasses and had no calluses. That's the level of how they think. Some constraint at the moment. I dare say, politically, because the cameras are there. But as soon as these guys have gone and everyone's gone, it's going to be a hellscape. And I'm guessing if the experience of post-war Europe is anything to go by, that anyone involved in the Afghan military, anyone involved in interpreting, anyone involved in supply, or is basically going to be hunted down at this point? Yeah. The question is, are they going to just be killed or are they going to be re-educated? You know, I go back to the fall of Saigon and the 300,000 people that were snatched up from the streets and and sent to re-education camps. I'm Um, guessing that's code for torture. In many cases, but it's like, are you on my side or aren't you? Let's prove it. If you're a doctor or a nurse and there's a, a good chance, providing that you meet their criteria of being on their side and righteous, then there's likelihood that you'll be allowed to play. There is a question, most of the uh, women will be sent home, they won't be allowed out. So I know previously women doctors, women nurses, pediatricians, teachers, uh, psychiatrists, psychologists, all the people, politicians, people who we trained or they were trained in the West, of which, of course, many, many were, went to university, came back home to apply their trade or wherever it was. And we know that everyone that's been working in the banks has all been sent home. We know that there's no role for women in politics anymore. And so the whole bit about a society that no longer has women in any anything other than at home, that's gone. The men, if they are highly trained you know in in something as an engineer they may be kept on i guess it will be very much like the sort of denazification process where how badly contaminated are you yeah and how can afghanistan function as a society from now on clearly china has is will be negotiating for the lithium mines and, and such and coal so there will be a, a revenue stream coming from there. I know a lot of the military hardware that's been captured has gone off to various countries each side. So there'll be a revenue stream there. And of course, uh, some countries will prop them up because it's in their interest to do so. Is there any will for what's happening at the airport to just extend for longer? There's noises being made that we will get everyone out. But I'm also hearing noises saying from the uh, the Taliban that they are frustrated that the foreigners haven't gone away because they can't really start playing until the foreigners have gone. Yeah, and surely those two forces are in collision. 
at some point, I don't doubt there will be. Now, that would very much depend on the likes of Hamakazai and Abdullah Abdullah to, uh, I would guess, uh, negotiate with State Department and Foreign Office to say, look, we can extend this or, or we'll we're help get more people out. Of course, part of the plan of this, and, and one of the things that terrorists are very good at, is also looking at a situation and going, how can we exploit this? So there will be undoubtedly a, a tranche of Al-Qaeda who now have papers to say that they were translators. And their aim would be to get into UK, USA to perpetrate terrorist acts. They will go there, they will ingratiate themselves, and they, they will then become sleeper cells for further terrorism. We have no means to do that. And again, I go back to uh, the intelligence capability by taking out what we had there in 2,500 troops, of which you know, most of them were logistics, intelligence, and training. We now will never know what's going on. A country that was terrorist safe haven that caused so much harm is now back more unified. I mean, interesting enough, the Taliban now control more of Afghanistan than they did pre-2001. Right, right. I, I heard that. What about Ashraf Ghani? Ghani was an academic. I mean, he was a, a safe pair of hands insofar as that Western governments could just tell him what to do. He was not a strong man. He famously wrote the book about fragile states, ironically. Oh, really? Yeah, which was banded around. So he was an academic, gone off to the UAE now. And of course, they're trying to rubbish him by saying he had took out 179 million or billion, whatever it was. May be true, may not be true. I very much doubt he had access to that sort of money. He's out of the picture now. And, and of course, the blame game is that it was the, the previous president and Ghani and the Afghan army and wasn't our fault, governor. Big boy did it and ran away. One thing that struck me when Daesh were in full swing was the only way to really stop it was to eradicate them. Yeah. Militarily. Yeah. There was no other solution apart from mass genocide. It strikes me that the Taliban are no different in that regard. You know, there isn't any way that we can realistically sit around a table and say, look, guys, come on, it's 21st century. Come on. Let's cut the fundamentalist crap. You know, chill, I, guys. You know, I, watch some friends. Over the ensuing weeks, you will hear lots of stories about, well, the Taliban never left Afghanistan pre-2001. So they're unlikely to want to go into Iran or the, the Stans or Pakistan or China or, or to take over the swathes of land elsewhere. What we do know is pre-2001, the Taliban didn't have the arms and equipment and money to go expeditionary. Al-Qaeda did, and Al-Qaeda did. The question now is, with billions worth of kit, I mean, literally billions, arms, ammunition, fighting vehicles, and of course, they also have access now to all the biometrics for the whole country, the whole biometric system for the National Directorate of Security, and various other bits and pieces that undoubtedly have been left behind on servers is what they want. Do they want uh, an international jihad? Do they want to start, as feared by Russia, to start to influence uh, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, and, and, and so on and so forth? Is there an issue to do with the northwest frontier, which obviously with the Durand line, uh, which has never been accepted? Is there an issue there? 
Balochistan, of course, is a is a big thorn in the problem of Pakistan. Is there something to be done there? Iran, of course, will will play it very cagey. But do they want that brand of Islam come in their direction? There's a lot of stuff bouncing around, and of course. Not being there, it's unlikely that we will actually get to know much what's going on. It could simply be that they will classically just let others play like Al-Qaeda. I think there will be a consolidation period. But I think ultimately, if I, if I was a Taliban leader and I'd spent 20 years in Guantanamo Bay, I'd want some payback. But would you want payback within your own population or would it be right? Well, you have to control your population first. That's sort of rule 101, isn't it? You want to know what resources you've got and maybe some good resources there within your population, even though there might be people who you, you don't particularly like that, that you can utilize. And you've got to keep the population controlled, but reasonably happy. And in Afghanistan, it's the men that have to be happy, not the women. Nobody gives a shit about the women. There's a number of imponderables at the moment. We should not be facing those imponderables because of a decision. If we were sitting here now, the three of us, looking at, hey, look, I've got this really good idea, you'd want somebody to red team that and say, well, look, if we go down that road, this is likely to happen, and then this is likely to happen. Is that where we want to be? So the the decision becomes, well, okay, let's not make a decision at the moment. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and I get America's at that, you know, at that point, Whilst nothing's happening, you can afford that decision. And nobody's criticizing the fact that you are there with 2,500 troops. Congress isn't on your back. Your backbenchers aren't on your back. The press aren't on your back. And yes, there will be some news coming out, but it will become a little bit of a back. But then if you say, look, you know, we're going to make a, a promise to do something, then you, you start to say, right, give me some options, guys. Give me what go possibly wrong and you'd like to think at that point what could go wrong would have been foreseen and therefore you then go back and you say listen we were going to do this but we don't want this to happen and it's likely to happen or you plan for something that is going to be less disastrous the guys and gals that did the war fighting went there for really good reasons and for everything that they've done to see the enemy in a week and a half two weeks come back it was all for nothing that's the chance at the moment my anger is that people who made that decision perhaps didn't need to to have been there but it clearly there was no thought about the veterans on both sides of the pond. What are they going to think? My anger is, is why did you do this? And why did you do it like this? Why did we do it for 20 years? And then you just stopped doing it. Do you think that the troops that were out there fighting and dealing with insurgencies and so on, do you think that they had a sense of purpose and mission or were they just doing a job? Oh, yeah, there was, there was a sense of purpose and mission, no, no question about that. And knowing the British military as I do, you know, they would have been well briefed on what that mission is and, and the aims and objectives. And, and everyone came back after six months knowing that their friends had lost legs or were killed. 
that there was a sense that they were keeping a lid on it, that they were, even if it was just holding the fort for the next team to come along. And they were lauded. Gallantry medals were given. And, you know, we've seen the films, Kajaki and all the rest of it to try and get, you know, a dam working so people can have water. Everyone that went there. And now that everyone that went there is thinking, um, What's the point? yeah, really. And I can't think of anyone now, and certainly not me. If I had a, a couple of young lads, sons, and they said to me, I'm thinking about joining the military, I'd be going, no, really, no, no. To walk away and leave. And then two weeks later, the enemy came marching in. No, that's not on. That's not on. No. We put our lives on the line every time we went out there. Every time we got into an armored vehicle, we put a body armor on. We knew at some point that there would be a, an IED or a sniper or a suicide bomber because it had happened so many times before. And I remember my last bit when I went off to the elections center. I was very uncomfortable when we went there and we did what we had to do and we came out and then we had an invite to go back the following day at the same time. And I said no to the team. I said, not, not happening. And a suicide bomber blew up the front of it. Everyone that's been to Afghanistan has a, has a story like that. Every single person. So in no way is that unique. We went there and we believed in what we were doing. And we saw some success, some massive successes. You know, as I say, we never went there to turn it into Henley on Thames. And, and anyone that did, mm. I've never met anyone that did. We went mm. there to maintain a, a, a level that was parable with any normal Middle Eastern country. People that were out there became realists very, very quickly. It was small, small interactions that can change something. And now, every person that's been out there, there's a, lot, a couple of really good charities out there. And one of the charities is Stray Dogs, of which there are huge amounts in Kabul. And a guy left the army or Marines, went out there with his wife, took a guest house on, trained some uh, locals in how to look after dogs, and got the dogs off the streets and, you know, had them neutered and, uh, and all the rest of it. Yeah, found homes for them. Fabulous little charity. And you could turn around to me and say, well, you know, is that something that we should be doing? Well, yeah, absolutely. It should be. It made Kabul safer. There wasn't packs of dogs attacking children. But it also taught people that how to take dogs off, uh, how to, to, to neuter them, the whole package. That's an example of something that's gone. Now, you yeah. can say to me, well, there's no point of being there if that's all we were doing. But no, we were doing orphanages. We were doing. A whole tranche of stuff of, of, of charities. And a good friend of mine was doing beekeeping. A very good friend of mine um, was, was planting trees because most of the trees have gone uh, outside of Kabul. People were looking at archaeological stuff and trying to get the museums up and running. So people would, would go and visit museums. I can't even imagine what the museums now are all being destroyed. So this is Islamic history. This is. Afghan history. This is looking after kids, orphanages, stray dogs, small pieces of work in the grand scheme of things have now all been swept to a side. They've all gone. Then you add you know, the, the bigger picture, going to school, women learn how to read and write, blah, blah, blah. So you've, you've then got that. Now, let alone, I'll say, you know, giving them 
was it two billion pounds worth of arms and uh, ammunitions? Wow. Going back to your point about meeting Taliban fighters and so on then, looking back at that experience, what did it leave you with? Very little, really. I I negotiated, Mm. uh, say, with the Taliban commander. We sat every day in the morning. He would come out of the, the compound that had been taken over by them and sit with me on the steps. And we would sit there and uh, and drink tea and talk about our families. And he actually made a little bead key ring for Francesca, which was, was quite interesting. And I think I gave him something of mine for his daughter. Erudite, very focused religiously on the rights and wrongs, and of which there is no argument. The Quran is the Quran. The Hadiths are the Hadiths, and their fundamentalist position is how they see the world. They see, you know, the West as being decadent and wrong and and the way that we do things. Uh, My aim was to gain his trust and to try and get him to surrender. So, but the the Taliban fighters I met were individually certainly no more threat than, than anyone else. The occasional psychopath, criminal elements and stuff like that, you saw it in their eyes and basically you had nothing to do with them. But uh, no, I mean, I, I've sat down and shared bread with the Taliban and they've shown nothing but, I won't use the word kindness, but certainly uh, respect and me to them because obviously, you know, the aim was to get the women and children released and the dead. Cruel people, yes. Death means nothing to them. Why is that? Is that because of the religious belief in that yes, you know, uh, Allah yeah. will judge? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. What I'm doing is yeah. giving Allah the choice. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and and they've been surrounded in that region with death for so long. It, it's it's almost, oh, look, there's another Starbucks on the corner. Uh, oh, look, there's another person hanging from the, from the lamppost. It equates to that. Uh, I mean, it's such an unbelievable world, isn't it? But if you if you read you know some of the, the the old books of going back to the 1800s when explorers were bimbling through the area, it simply has not changed, and they're happy with that. That's that's their world. They never went through the Enlightenment. They never went through uh, any massive changes. The Russians came, uh, Alexander the Great came, uh, the British came, but it never impacted outside of Kabul. I remember sitting there's a. a, a a lovely hotel in Bamiyan where the, the Taliban blew up the Buddhas. Uh, there's a hotel called the Silk Road Hotel. And I sat on the veranda one very early morning, six o'clock in the morning, sun was coming up and they were out there with the scythes cutting. I mean, it simply looked like a Bruegel painting. I was sort of transported back to the, the Middle Ages. You know, the, there was no technology uh, and everyone was out with scythes. So I suppose the nearest equivalent in the Western world would be the Amish or something, would it? Yeah, to to a certain extent, the Amish with a uh, Kalash. Well, I, I think is the thing about the yeah. Yeah, Amish with a Kalashnikov. <laughs> there's, a so there's, a, there's a story for you there, Matt. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> yeah. That could be a new horror film. I'll leave you with the fact that you know it wasn't perfect by any means, and 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 the army rightfully pulled out in 2014 because we were fighting an impossible war because. We didn't control the borders uh, and the Taliban just whipped across to across to another country and then came back uh, and there were no real gains going on. Leaving uh, a country, I mean, 20 years, if you consider that I don't think any country that's um, gone through what it's gone through 
it is going to be an effective country after 20 years. And I, I, I define anyone to say that it would. The fact that we weren't willing to maintain at least the ability for it to stabilize itself somewhat, or at least come to a, a political solution rather than a war fighting solution that gives us the opportunity to say, okay, now we're getting out, military will stay, we collapse all the civilians, any foreigners that need to leave can leave, get them out, protect those that are likely to be a target for retribution. That could take a year, but have the process there ongoing, and then collapse it down, military go home, and the chances are very much like uh, Vietnam that uh, any political solution then breaks down and they go back to war fighting. But at the end of the day, those of us that have been there can sit and say, "Do you know what? You know, you know that that's pretty tough." But everything, all the ticks in the boxes for for what we did were there. Yeah. One last question for me. Listening to you talk, and you know, when we first opened the, the conversation, I could feel the anger in your voice um and i think a lot of that anger comes from what would otherwise previously have been an element of pride in what you helped other people achieve in afghanistan what do you feel most proud of personally when you look back at your contribution to that effort i think certainly there there was no no way to to keep combatants safely so that they didn't escape and cause mayhem. I unashamedly wept when Pulacharki, uh, when they all got let out. I, I uh, uh, not me, um, my, my team, you know, nothing I do is without, without other people who are around me who do the legwork. An inordinate amount of time and at great risk to go around, I mean, I did 19 provinces, traveling around, cajoling, supporting a justice system that not only looked after people and didn't kill them, um, but also kept them safe and secure. Um, Not perfect, by any means. I was very angry when they let out 5,000 Taliban. I thought that was stupid. There was no need for that, part of the, uh, uh, the Doha talks. But I understood the concept of, of prisoner exchanges, remembering that there are still American prisoners out there that have never been released by the Taliban. I take some pride in that, but I also think of, of how it affected the guys and girls. Uh, and I know of two very good friends of mine, American friends, because I worked with a joint American team that were killed just outside Pulacharki, trying to do that. and So I think legacy-wise, everything that I've done in Afghanistan, there, there is no legacy now. And, and legacy is, you know, uh, perhaps it, it's a very vain attitude, but um, I've always worked on the premise that every man and woman should have a legacy. I have other legacies, of course, and my children and my marriage are, are, are probably primary. But as far as profession is concerned, it's a huge dent in everything that I tried to achieve and at great personal risk. And I can't even imagine those that have lost people, what that legacy now means to them. And for politicians to not give a shit about it 
or to offer platitudes. Seeing my so blood pressure say. rise again. <laughs> <laughs> I can't help but think of that old adage of prior preparation and planning prevents piss poor performance. And I think at the end of the day, there's been none of that. Having been old enough to watch the fall of Saigon and some other disasters along the way, I consider this to be the greatest disaster in my lifetime. Thanks so much for listening to this one-off special interview. We hope you found it as interesting to listen to as we did to produce it. In this episode, we'd like to give a special shout-out to all of the men and women who have risked their lives to try and bring peace and stability to Afghanistan. We are sure that your work has not been in vain and that you have touched many thousands of people over the years. This was Straight from the Hot Tap.